I'll ask you to go in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So we're going to study here through the book of Exodus entitled, I Am Still Is. And so uh, we've made our way here through the first few chapters, slowed down a little bit here in chapter uh, number 3. And last week we looked at the holiness of God and we'll uh, come into, uh, we'll, we'll kind of do a very brief scope to catch you up to speed, but also to realize that we dealt with really point one of this message uh, last week. And so we'll briefly go through that again, but I believe there's something here that God wants us to see and uh, understand. So Exodus chapter three, and if you find your place, you can stand in honor of God's word. Exodus chapter three, we're going to cover uh, really for the vast majority of the message, verses 7 through verse 10. But I want to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 10 to kind of catch us up to speed from last week. So Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Last week, we looked at this subject, I am is still holy. And this week, we're going to look at this idea, I am still sees. I am still sees. May God bless reading his word. You can be seated. We'll consider our text tonight. I'm not going to go too deep tonight, but we understand that our eyesight is one of the most vitally important senses to our functionality in life. I'm thankful I have eyes, thankful I can see, especially living here in a beautiful place like Colorado. I'm glad I can see the mountains and the shadows and the rainbows over the mountains when we're having stormy days like today. It's awesome. 
when you see things like like that. I'm thankful that I can see the reflection of a mountain off a crystal clear lake. That's always a beautiful sight. And of course, the colors in the fall as we see the trees start to turn colors. It's always a beautiful thing to see. But beyond simply being able to see beautiful things, our eyesight is key to the conscious decisions that we make in life. Seeing helps me know when to cross the street. That's kind of a helpful thing. When we were in San Diego a few weeks back, we were walking around Coronado Island several times uh, that week in the downtown area. And the way people drive on that island, it's a good thing that we have eyes to see. Otherwise, we might be in trouble. And so I'm thankful for that. Uh, it helps me know which way to turn at an intersection based off the lights, based off the vehicles that are coming in the traffic. Now, it helps me identify which of my children are throwing a baseball to me. That's very helpful because if I'm looking over here and this one's throwing the baseball, I mean, I'm probably not going to move my glove to my face in time and I'm going to get nailed in the face. And so I'm glad that I can see uh, for that reason. Uh, thinking about mixing paint at a paint store. It's helpful to have eyes, to be able to see the colors, to be able to see which paint you're putting which color into, which customer you're giving the right paint to. Those are important things. And so when we consider our eyesight, seeing helps us know the next move that we need to make. As we read Exodus chapter uh, 3, in verse number 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Did you know that God sees your affliction? That when you're going through hard times in life, when you're going through health problems, when you're going through marriage problems, and you're going through financial problems and family problems, that God sees your affliction. He sees your suffering. He, he has eyes to behold every single thing that we go through every single day of our lives. And his message to Moses and specifically to the entire nation of Israel is that I know that you've been in bondage here for 400 years. I know that you've been afflicted by your taskmasters. And there have probably come times during this stretch of life in, in your nation that you've wondered, where is the God of our fathers? Does he see? Does he hear the cries that are coming out of our hearts? Does he hear our groans? Does he feel our pain? Does he know our sorrow? And God steps on the scene here and he wants them to know I have seen. In fact, the way that he says it, when he says, I have surely seen, it's in the, the original, it's I have seen, I have seen. It's double emphasis there. I want you to know I see where you're at. And there are times in our lives when we are going through those struggles of life, when we're going through the marriage problems, when we're going through the oppression at work, when your boss is always coming down and hammering down on you, and when you're, when you're crying in your bed at night because the physical pain that you're dealing with constantly, that there are times when we just wonder, where is God in all this? Does God know where I'm at? Does God see what I'm feeling and what I'm going through? Does he feel it? Does he hear it? Is, is God involved in my life right now or has he abandoned me? Is God even real? Sometimes we can question those things when we're going through our most challenging circumstances of life. Every day we encounter affliction at the hands of our greatest afflictor and that is sin. See, every evil that we face is a result of living in a fallen world. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says, The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together. Listen, it's not just us. When you consider, we, we saw this on a Sunday night during our creation study as we showed that video. You talk about the, the lions attacking the little baby antelope and you see the, the killing that goes on within nature and the death and the destruction. Uh, not just human beings, all of creation groans is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Anger is the result of sin. Abuse is the result of sin. Gun violence is the result of sin. Racism is the result of sin. Political corruption is the result of sin. Disease, fire, tornadoes. We had some of those going on around the state today. That's a result of sin. Houses burning down in flames is the result of sin. And as we face the results and the consequences of sin, it oftentimes brings pain, suffering, and immense sorrow into our lives. And we can wonder in those times, does God know where I am? Does God see what I'm going through? Does God feel the pain that I'm experiencing? And what this text is going to show us that just as God saw Israel's affliction, God sees your affliction. And the same thing that is true with us is true with God because we are made in his image. And the fact that God says, I have seen, I have seen, tells us this. His sight allows him to know the next move to make. And so here's the question tonight. How does God respond to our afflicted condition? As we're, as we're facing these struggles in life, as we are facing the physical pain, the emotional pain, the psychological pain, and the suffering that we go through, how does God respond to us when he sees it? What we looked at last week is that the first thing that God does is he manifests his holy nature to unholy man. Uh, again, we'll not go deeply into this because we spent almost an hour last Thursday going into verses one through six. But just to briefly recap for those who maybe weren't here, Moses has, has been on the backside of the desert because he fled from Pharaoh after he killed the Egyptian trying to defend and show himself to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. So he's run for his life. And we fast forward. This is about 40 years after Moses went out into the Midianite desert. And so we're talking, Moses has been in the backside of the desert, minding his own business. He's become a shepherd over his father-in-law, Jethro's flock. And so he's up there and he comes to this mountain. And as he's coming to this mountain, God revealed his holy nature to Moses. Moses sees this burning, fiery bush, but he notices that the fire is not completely consuming the bush, and he begins to draw closer, and God saw that there's a whole lot of seeing going on here, by the way. Moses saw the bush. God saw Moses looking at the bush, and God saw Moses drawing near to the bush, and God called out to his name twice, Moses, Moses. He says this, don't come any closer. There's got to be... I am so holy, there has to be a distance between me and your unholiness. He says, you cannot come any closer. In fact, you need to take your shoes off because the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. God's holiness demands a distance 
between him and man's unholiness. That's what we saw last week. But then what we also see is at the end of uh, verse number six, it says that Moses hid his face in his hands because he was afraid to look on God. And here's what that reveals to us about God's holiness, that while God's eyes are too pure and too holy to behold man's evil, man's eyes are too evil to behold God and his holiness. And so what God did here, his first response, because as you come to the end of chapter two, it talks about again, how he had seen and he had heard and he had known about that. And it leaves you hanging at the end of chapter two. So how's God going to respond? And the very first way that he responds is to manifest his holy nature before unholy men. And so too, when God sees our affliction, when he sees the suffering that we're going through, when he sees the hurts and the pains and the abuse and the racism and the gun violence, and he looks upon his creation and he sees it groaning and he sees it travailing, God's response to our afflicted condition as a result of sin was to manifest his holy nature before unholy men. He was incarnated in human flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, he was 100% God. And yet at the same time, he was 100% man. And he bore in his earthly tabernacle, all the nature of the holy God. Jesus came and he lived a perfect holy life. Never sinned one time in his entire life. And, and, and he called people to see the distance, the chasm that stood between them and God. To see how unholy they were in light of how holy God is. And he called them to be reconciled by faith in him. He called the religious leaders who justified themselves and declared themselves to be good enough. He called them to see, no, your righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not good enough to gain entrance into the kingdom. This is what we've been seeing in the gospel of Luke over the last couple of months, really, is he's calling these self-righteous people to lay down their arms of righteousness and accept their unholiness before a holy God so that they might be reconciled to him by faith in Jesus Christ. When God saw the afflicted condition of man, he determined before the foundation of the world that he was going to step into our world and veil his glory in human flesh, and he revealed his holy nature to unholy people. That was how God responded first to our affliction. And so God has revealed himself to be perfectly holy in ways that man's eyes are unworthy to behold. Do you realize that because God is so holy and because we are so unholy that God would have been perfectly just to look on our sin and to look on our suffering and our pain and see it as the result of our sin, they rejected me. I gave, I gave man this beautiful garden. I gave him life on a platter. I made everything to where they knew nothing but my goodness. They didn't know my evil. I just gave them one command in accordance with their free will. Don't eat of that tree. And the first thing that man did was rebel against me. And now he's living with the consequences. And I'm just going to leave it that way. He could have done that. But instead, you know what he did? First of all, he manifested his holiness. You know what else he did? He chose to graciously identify with our affliction. Would you look at verse seven? It says, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. 
and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. God wants Moses and he wants Israel to understand that the God of their fathers knows what they're going through. That he has seen the affliction that they've experienced. He's seen the whippings. He's seen the lashings. He's seen the beatings they've taken. He's seen the death. He's seen the abuse. He's seen the the sun burned on their backs because of the immense heat of that desert. He says, I want you to know I've seen the affliction. And not only have I seen it, I want you to know I know where you are. He says, I've seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. Let me just take note of this real quick. Here's an amazing thing that we shouldn't pass over. As holy as God reveals himself to be in verses one through six, God in divine grace can still come to a place where he considers an unholy people, my people. It's amazing. And he says, my people, which are in Egypt. Hey, listen, God knows where you're at. He knows where you live every day. He knows where you sleep every night. He knows the nights that you don't sleep. He knows exactly where you are at. He has seen the affliction. He knows where you are. And it says that he has heard their cry by reason of their bondage. That word cry, it's their yelling, their screaming, their wailing. That Because, I mean, with every single lash of the whip, he heard that cry. He heard the cries of children in the rooms as their parents came home at night, bloodied and beaten and roasted by the sun. He heard those cries. And he says this, for I know their sorrows, their pain, their suffering. God wanted them to know that the pain, the suffering, and the oppression they were experiencing was known and felt by God. See, people today are bound by the oppressive nature of sin. And when we're in bondage because of our sins or the sins of others, we tend to question whether or not God's really there, whether or not God really sees where we're at, whether or not he really knows what we're going through. Sometimes we can come up with the idea that maybe because we're God's people that we shouldn't have to face suffering. That because we're God's people, we, should be, uh, we, should, we shouldn't have to go through that. That life should be easy. God should make our life easy. I mean, I've been faithful in church. I've tithed. I've given to missions. I've gone out on outreach. I've invited people to come. I mean, God's really done a work of growing me. And I, I think I've come to the place where I've moved past the need to suffer. I've moved past the place where I should be going through trials and afflictions. But the reality is, as you look through the course of history, God's people have always been subject to suffering. Job is a classic example. Job was the wealthiest man in the East. He had kids, a family, land, animals. Everybody looked up to him. He was one of the greatest men of his day. And on top of that, he was a good, holy, moral, and upright man. He worshiped God. And just in case his children had sinned, he offered sacrifices to God. I mean, Job loved God. And in a moment of time, he lost his family. He lost his possessions. And he lost his health in just a moment of time. Job never came to find out why that happened. He had no idea that the driving force behind his affliction was satanic oppression. He had no idea. And you know what happened in the course of his life? He never came to find out. 
God never gave Job the why, but what God gave Job was the who. That Job couldn't make sense out of why, why when he was such a good man and such a, I mean, it says that in all these things, he did not sin with his lips. He did not curse God. And yet he had questions in his life. Hey, there are times when you are following God and you are worshiping him that you go through things that cause you to question God. Why is this happening in my life? And, and Job goes through the book of Job and he is justifying himself and he's got these three not so awesome friends who are saying, dude, get over yourself. You've obviously sinned or else God would have been better to you than this. And he says, no, I've not sinned. I've been good. Stop calling me a sinner. And so they get in these arguments and everything. And, and what God does is God shows up in a whirlwind. And he says, where were you when I made heaven and earth? You know what he did? He reminded Job of his holiness, his transcendence, his distinctness, the fact that he is above and outside of creation and that he does all things for his glory and all things for his purposes. And he says, basically this, Job, who are you to justify yourselves? You know what Job said? I'm not saying anything else. He says, I'm putting my hands on my mouth. You go ahead and speak. God revealed himself to Job through his suffering in ways Job would not have ever known without his suffering. Yeah, by the end of it, God turned it around and God blessed him and God gave him more kids and God gave him uh, his family back and God gave him his health back. And in all of those things, sure, Job questioned, why is all this coming into my life when I've been a good man? He came to realize I'm not a good man and I don't deserve any of God's goodness, that it was in that moment God revealed who he was. Job never got the why, but he got the who. And sometimes that's how God works in our lives. We, we would question, why did he allow this 400 years of slavery? And there are some biblical reasons for that involving that, that the Amorites, we've talked about this multiple times, the Amorites had not yet sinned to the point where God would be uh, un unjust to allow it to go on. And so there was this plan and this purpose, but it was there that God was blessing them, making them a great nation, fulfilling his promises. And yet we look at the suffering and we say, why did it have to be that way? We may never get the answers to the why, but God always gives us the answer of the who. And that's exactly what he's doing in this text for Israel. That's exactly what he does in our lives. He wants Israel and he wants us to know that he does see our afflictions. He does hear our cries and he does know he feels our pain. He feels our suffering. And you might just say, well, how in the world could he feel our pain? How could he feel our suffering? Well, instead of allowing us to face the consequences of sin on our own, he chose to identify with our sin. He chose to take on human flesh. He chose to be born into this world. He chose to know what it's like to suffer the consequences of sin, though he was not responsible for sin at all. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is called in the Old Testament, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. There's a great song that says, he became acquainted with grief so that I could be acquainted with grace. That's what Jesus did for us. He knows what it's like to lose an earthly parent. 
He knows what it's like to weep at the grave of a dear friend. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and forsaken by his best friends. He knows what it's like to have brothers who don't believe in him. He knows what it's like to be mocked and spit upon. He knows what it's like to be beaten and abused by men. He knows what it's like to be wounded, to bleed, to suffocate, and to breathe his final breath. He came to identify with us. He subjected himself to the worst atrocities of sinful man. And he didn't deserve a single ounce of that. It's something he willfully chose to do in response to our afflicted condition. Rather than letting us go through it on our own, he chose to go through it with us. He still sees our afflicted condition. And when he saw it, first of all, he manifested his holy nature. Second of all, he chose to identify with our affliction. I want you to notice number three, that God came to deliver his people from their afflicted condition. It says in verse number eight, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. See, What God is saying, I mean, let's think about this for a second. God, who is bigger than the universe, has come down into this little flame in a bush. And he says, I am here visibly manifesting myself to you. And I have deliverance in mind. I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand, out of the grasp of Egypt. See, Egypt had Israel firmly seized within its grasp and it grasped them by the throat day after day, oppressing them, squeezing them. And when God saw the squeeze that Egypt had upon Israel, he came to break that hold and to free them from it. Listen, sin is a dominating oppressive force in your life. It has a fierce grip on man. It is an oppressive ruler that has you shackled in chains that leads you with a whip in hand, constantly redirecting you and constantly pulling you back within its grasp. And so sin brings pain and sin brings darkness and it brings suffering into your life. It binds you to an addiction uh, to porn that you feel like you can't break free from. It wraps your life up in anger and bitterness that you don't think you'll ever be able to get uh, past. And, and, and as it comes to uh, drugs and it comes to substances that we put into our body, let me just say this. If you want to know, I mean, we got a lot of things here that we're legalizing in, in Colorado and in California as well. Uh, you know, we just decriminalized the psychedelics and the shrooms. and They're having a conference about how good that is for you and all of those things. And, and we talked to the people at a- Antelope Recovery dealing with teen mental health. And one of the things that they said was it would have sure been nice to have some research on how this stuff is going to affect people before we just let it loose on the streets. The reality is this. Alcohol is a binding force in people's lives. All it takes is one night of a few sips to end up, to to land you in a drunken state where you can't live without the bottle. Not all it takes is a little bit of weed to get you to where you're so bound by it to where you don't think you can break free from it, where you can't cope without it, where you can't get through stress without it. And it's something that just grabs a hold of you. And the same thing would be true with shrooms. The same thing would be true with narcotics and, and other hardcore drugs that these things can have a binding 
force on you and they oppress you and they hold you fiercely within its grip. But what we see constantly in the scriptures is God does not intend for his people to be bound. He intends for you to be free. And so when God sees that oppression of sin in your life, when he sees that addiction that you think you can't live without, he comes to deliver, to deliver you from it, to break those chains, to break that bondage. But I also want you to see that when God comes down to deliver, he doesn't just deliver you from something, he delivers you to something. Would you look at verse eight? He says, and then come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey under the place of the Canaanites and all the other ites that would just clue them in on the land of promise, the land God promised to give them. See, God had a plan of deliverance that was much greater than just coming out of Egypt. God had a plan for their future. He wanted to deliver them from bondage to freedom. He wanted to deliver them from confinement to a large land where they could spread out instead of having to be subject to this one city. He wanted to deliver them from poverty to this land that was what it literally means is oozing forth with milk and honey. God wanted to deliver them from a a, a meaningless system of worship to a godly, meaningful system of worship. He's going to deliver them from defeat in Egypt to victory in Canaan. See, when God delivers you something from something, he also delivers you to something. God's plan is not for you to continue to be bound by the chains of sin. His plan is to deliver you to freedom in Christ. He wants to deliver you from drunkenness to sobriety, from porn to purity, from uh, coping with drugs to coping with Jesus, from uh, anger to kindness. He wants to deliver you from a meaningless system of worship to a meaningful system of worship where you come in every single Sunday and every single Thursday, it's not dragging yourself to church anymore, but where your heart gets a hold of God's holiness and the distance that was between you and the fact that you couldn't look on God and God couldn't look on you and yet God came and he identified with your affliction and he came down to die and to deliver you from those chains of sin and your heart just overflows into praise and worship and adoration to where when you get down on your knees and you go to pray, it's full of meaning rather than just constant duty and falling asleep and getting bored, but rather it's something that's meaningful because you know you're talking to the father who has reconciled you to himself through the death of his son. When God delivers you from something, he delivers you to something way better. He wants to do that in your life. The question is this, how does God bring about this deliverance? Well, what we see here is that God commissions a man to bring his deliverance to a captive people. Verse 9, God says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed then. Now he speaks to Moses, Come now therefore, And I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God came down to deliver 
But the way that he was going to bring this deliverance was to commission a human instrument to go and bring deliverance to Israel. He was going to send Moses to bring God's judgment on the Egyptians, to part the waters, to he was going to lead them through the wilderness all the way to the banks of Jordan. God sent a human deliverer to deliver Israel, but understand that later on in life, Moses recognizes, I am not the deliverer that Israel needs, but he tells them, God is going to raise up unto you a prophet like unto me, and unto that prophet, you will finally listen, and that prophet will give you the full and complete deliverance that I could not bring you, and that Joshua can not bring you. And in that he came to uh, prophesy that the prophet who would bring the true deliverance is the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, who has manifested holy God among unholy men who identified with our affliction and died on the cross to pay the price for our sin and rose again to defeat our greatest foes, namely sin and death. And now by faith in Jesus Christ, we can be delivered. The chains can be broken and we can be free. So when God saw the affliction of his people, how did he respond? God responded to Israel's condition by sending a deliverer on a redemptive mission. And what we see in this text about God is this. I am still sees. He still sees. He still sees our affliction. He still hears our cries. He still knows our sorrows. And in response, God has revealed his holy nature and he has identified with our affliction and he has come to deliver us. And now today, God has still responded the same way that he responded back then. He responds to man's condition by sending people on a redemptive mission. See, we got to realize this, folks, that there's a world around us that is still today oppressed by sin, that they are still held captive in chains. There are some who spend every night in anguish over an irreversible biological decision they made under pressure and indoctrination, and they're contemplating suicide because of that decision that they made. Here? Absolutely. Right now. Somebody's over in college housing saying, what have I done? Right now, somebody's over on the hill saying, I can't change this. And they're thinking about ending it all right now. In the mansions up in Lee Hill, their children being raised in a seemingly perfect environment. They've got it all in this big old mansion. They've got the views, they got the pond behind their house, the hot tub on the patio, the video game system in the basement. I mean, they, they are living it up and yet they're in their room right now as I am speaking, crying themselves to sleep because their parents are never home and they have nobody loving on them and really investing in them the way that children need. There are children that are in the projects here in Boulder who 
whose parents are constantly strung out on drugs and on psychedelics and they're basically worthless and they're just barely making it by and the dad comes home drunk from the bar and he comes and beats on that child and they've got the scrapes, they've got the cuts and the bruises and they're crying out for deliverance. They have no idea where to go because they've been brought up in a system that has no knowledge or existence of God and they think this is all that life is ever gonna be and even teenagers are thinking about ending it all right here, right now in this city. They're going through intense affliction, abuse, and depression by people who say that they love them or may never say they love them. They're sailors, soldiers, and Marines here in our town who have nightmares every night because of the battles that they've been in in Afghanistan in Iraq and Vietnam and they're thinking about ending it all. Listen, there are people all around us who are either verbally out loud or silently in the cries of their hearts that are wailing and groaning and agonizing by reason of their affliction and what this text tells us is that God has seen God has heard and God knows. But listen, church, here's the question for us tonight. Are we seeing? Are we hearing? Are we aware of the suffering and the affliction of people all around us who are oppressed, who are bound by their sin, the people screaming at nobody because of what they've pumped into their system? I mean, we're talking about people that are on their way to hell, and the reason why is because there's nobody that's ever told them about the fact that a holy God who has a distance between man came to earth and manifested his holy nature and identified with their affliction and their sorrows and gave his life for their salvation. Listen, folks, God has seen, he has heard, he has known, he has done all the work and all that he has done is he has commissioned us now to be the human deliverers that he called Moses to be for them and he's calling us to be it for those right here in our city. We sang the song, are we hearing the call of the kingdom? Do we, do we, are we aware of the millions who grope in darkness waiting for the word of God, waiting for the hope of the gospel? They have no idea what they're looking for, but something is clicking within them tonight that this can't be all there is to this life. There's a something written on their hearts, by the way, which we know comes from God that says, I was made for a life better than this. But they have no idea where that life comes from and what a shame it would be for us who know where that life comes from to be like Moses on the backside of the desert for 40 years of our Christian life, not concerned, not hearing, not aware at all and just minding our own business, enjoying the freedom and the life that God has given us while people are perishing for eternity in hell. Our mission is his mission. And that mission is redemption. We're in a city here that needs us to go and tell them that I am still is that I am still sees, that I am still hears, that I am still knows, and that I am sent his son to deliver them. We've got to go.
So there are three things I want you to walk away with from this message. First of all is this, if you're not saved, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you're still in the affliction of sin, I want you to know God manifested his nature and he identified with your affliction and he gave his life for your redemption. And the Bible simply says that if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ and his death for your sin and his resurrection for your salvation and you call upon him to be your Savior, thou shalt be saved. And if you need to be saved... I want you to have the hope you can be delivered. He can get whatever demon off your back that's harassing you tonight. He can get those suicidal thoughts out of your mind. He can take away the pain that you've endured since your childhood. He can free you from the binding addiction and sexual sin in your life. He can free you from the drugs He can free you from the alcohol. He can get you to the place where you are completely free and at peace, no matter what's going on in your life. And he can give you hope that there is something better than this. There's a new heaven and a new earth where we live eternally with no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no affliction. That is the deliverance that God has brought through Jesus Christ. And if you'll trust him tonight, you can be saved. If you're saved tonight and you're going through the affliction, that affliction might be because of your sin. It might be because of somebody else's sin. Or you might be like Job just saying, what in the world? Why has this come up? I want you to know God sees. He knows where you're at. He hears your cries. Even when the heavens seem as brass. He still knows your pain. And he knows your sorrow. And I want you to have the hope he still delivers. He still delivers. So don't panic. Don't lose your mind. Don't lose your faith. Keep trusting. and He'll deliver. And church, God's commissioned us to bring his deliverance to an unbelieving world. And I think it's time that we as a church get serious and commit to engaging this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's time that we commit ourselves to weekly community outreach on Saturdays at 1030. It's time that we commit ourselves to at least all church outreach the first Saturday of every month. It's time that we, every time we walk out the door, that we grab a stack of invites and a stack of tracks and we make it a point and an effort in our lives that we're going to at least give out this stack every single week, whether it's to people on the streets. And it might be that you need to go up to somebody who's homeless sitting on Pearl Street and just tell them, hey, there's hope beyond this. I promise you there's hope beyond this. It's found in Jesus. Maybe those who are screaming at nobody to go and tell them, look, Jesus loves you. And he proved it when he died on the cross for you. That we'd be willing to engage people who aren't like us. People who don't dress like us. People who don't identify in the same gender as us, though they may look like it. 
that we're not scared off by how somebody looks or how somebody talks, or how somebody thinks, but that we're willing to, to, to take a look around us and to hear the cries of acceptance, the cries seeking acceptance and, 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 and seeking identity, and that we, we realize that we have the message of hope that they need, an identity that doesn't change from decade to decade, an identity that doesn't need to be reversed, an identity that comes from God and is anchored in him and in his love for them so that they can stop going on this journey that they've been trying to go on and finding nothing but emptiness. It's time that we respond the way that God has. Well, how did God respond? He sent deliverers. And he's still sending deliverers today. And we realize, like Moses, we're not the real deliverers. All we're doing is bringing the deliverance that God gave in Christ and handing it over to them that the chains might be broken in their life, that they might be forgiven and that their life might be changed as they are reconciled back to God, redeemed from the bondage to freedom in Christ. God has responded by sending deliverers and let us respond by being the deliverers he has commissioned us to be. Father, we come to you tonight acknowledging the role that you've given us here in this city. Amazed that a holy God would have anything to do with unholy man. And yet you chose to experience the results of our sin though you knew no sin. That you came to deliver. And now you're sending us out to bring that deliverance to others. There's much work to be done. Help us, Father, to see the way that you see and to hear the way you hear and to know the way that you know. That it might set that fire in our hearts and send us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask you to bless in our time of response here. That if there's somebody that's not saved, I pray they would trust Christ tonight. I pray for those who are going through some kind of affliction, that they would find their hope in your deliverance. And I pray that you would help us as a church to fulfill the calling that you've placed on our lives. So please speak. And help us to respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.